On this day in 1977, Meatloaf released his debut studio album, Bat Out of Hell. The album was developed from a musical, Neverland, a futuristic rock version of Peter Pan, semi-operatic trash or absolutely genre-bending, whichever way you think of this album, it was absolutely huge. In fact, it still sells around 200,000 copies a year. Is it in your collection? It's not, but we were speaking about choirs before. I'm pretty sure um, I sang that song in a girl's voice choir. I could probably bust out the alto part for you here today, Wallace. <laughs> what about you, Phil? Do you have the T-shirt? Oh, mate. Oh, look, I, we've, we, this is not the first time we've talked about uh, Meatloaf on this show. As a matter oh. of fact, I think, we were, I think I was there the day, well, the, the day after he died. We talked about That's it. That's right. But here's how, here's how important he is to me. I, was, I loved him when, he, when the album first came out. And then when he died, I was doing a bit of driving. And I just had it in the car on sort of just on on circle, you know. I was just playing it over and over again because it's just such a fantastic album. And and the interesting thing is he never really put another. I mean, well, everybody's going to argue he did put another great album out later on, but it was one of those. It, it was hard to match afterwards, wasn't it? Because it was such an important album. Yeah. He, he sort of struggled to match it afterwards, Absolutely. which is a bit sad in a sense. But it was great. I, I loved it, and I. And now you've inspired me again. I'm going to home and listen to it again, <laughs> and, and annoy just, everybody. It's just it's just timeless, isn't it? <laughs> That's right. It really is. There's nothing else. Like it. Uh, the panel, we have Joe McCarroll and Phil O'Reilly, and loving your company this afternoon. Thank you. Now, a listener emailed me and wanted me to put this to the panel. <laughs> we are in a relationship of around a year, and it's been going great. But we had our first argument in our relationship. Do you vote for policy or the personality? And he said... It's only policy. I said it has to be personality because the party I like, I don't really like who's leading them. Personality or policy. Speaking of which, the spin-off released the best of from the TVNZ Leaders Debate. Have a listen. Welcome to the battle of the two Chrises. Here they are. Well, first of all, I mean, I, I, I really admire Chris's commitment to his family, and he's, you know, and, and I, I do genuinely uh, respect that. Well, look, I really respect Chris for taking on the job of Prime Minister. It's an incredibly tough job, and I respect um, the great dad that he is too. Is now the time for New Zealand to become a republic? No. No. Uh, should we continue to ban nuclear-powered ships from our waters? Yes. Yes. Should cannabis de- be decriminalised? No. No. How old were you when you brought your first home? Uh, 24. Yeah, it would have been about the same. Chris and I were just talking about it in the break. There you go. A little bit of mash-up there. Now, Jackie van der Key has a PhD in politics, formerly at the Democracy Project at Victoria University. Jackie, kia ora, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you back, Jackie. Uh, And we thought, well, we'd get you on to sort of mull over this point because this was quite a serious email. You know, they had their first argument and it got me thinking about, you know, whether it should be policy or personality. Is there any research around, you know, whether people favour policies or personality in politics? Yeah, so it won't surprise you, Wallace, or anybody who's listening, that um, this whole issue of of how voters choose to vote is really complex. Mm. And so it's a very personal thing. So for some people, 
personality matters more than policy and for other people it's the opposite. So um, really it's about what matters to people at the time and there's also a whole myriad of other factors which of course um, you know, you'll appreciate as well in terms of party identification, your beliefs, your social situation, um, other demographics. There's, just a, there's so many factors that go into um, how people choose to vote. Yeah, some might say, is it perhaps a slightly more American phenomena where it does really appear to be all about the personality? Yeah, so I think what's become really evident, and and this is partly also to do with voting systems, is in America, it's much more uh, personality driven because they have a presidential campaign. Oh, right. So you know they have a have a much more focus on the vote for the president, which is, which, you know, is a, is a individual position, if you know what I mean, um, over the government. But, but I would say, though, that across all Western democracies, this trend towards more personalisation or more personality politics is, is, has become more apparent in, in recent years. So there has become much more focus on the individuals in politics than their parties. And I think partly, and, and not entirely, obviously it is really complicated, but partly that's to do with the fact that there's less differentiation in policies than there used to be. And that myth that you just showed, um, just had before, just from the debate this week, the leaders' debate, showed that, I mean, basically, both of them, when they did the quick fire, they agreed on everything. You know, they were like, yes, we agree with that, or no, we don't agree with that which means that the, differ- the point of differentiation becomes their personality. Ah, um, you, defer, you do defer to those nuances. And yeah. OK, Joe. Well, I couldn't agree with you more about the debate, Dr Van der Keer. There were times in that, during that debate I thought they were in the same party. Um, yeah. But I was wondering whether it was also more to do with the fact that we've, we expect so much more in terms of the humanity of our leaders now. We expect access to them. We expect to sort of see the places they live, who they're married to, see their children you know we we the days are gone when they can just sort of shut themselves up in Wellington and occasionally let us know what they've decided yeah so I think that I think that's a really good point um and I think social media has also played a big part in that and that our leaders for media and social media so media is now 24 7 you know we get media all the time and so our leaders or and our politicians generally are a lot more visible than they used to be and there is demand from the public to see more of them as a person. So, you know, we have now features and magazines of, you know, politicians at home and with their families and that sort of thing. So I think you're right. I think that definitely people are looking for that human connection as well. Phil? Yeah, I think uh, well, I've always thought it was a bit of both, of course. You, you do want to look at the policies of the parties, but, but you've also got to look at the leader and, and the, the senior three or four around that person and say, are they believable? Are, do, are they actually going to do what I think they're going to need to do? And, of course, we also know that as soon as they're elected, all bets are off in a sense the world is a very complicated place and they're going to be asked to do things that 
they might not have promised or perhaps they're going to be forced into a situation to do something that's on our behalf that's going to be quite important. And so you do actually, I think, have to look at the personalities of the leaders. It's not just a social media-driven thing. I think it does go to to their electability and, and how we trust them. I also think, and I'm interested in, in, in your views on this, Jackie, that there's a, there's a time issue this too. So some leaders become uh, very powerful politically because the zeitgeist kind of favours mm. them. So have a look at Jacinda Ardern and the nuclear-free moment and, and the, great admira- the great wave of admiration that, that towed her into a prime ministership. And, and the time seemed right for that, right? And, and, and then quite a, quite a divisive leader, as it turns out, people who loved her and people who couldn't stand her and so on. And then you've got this time in, in politics right now where you know, you've got two leaders who are probably less, much less inspiring than, say, Jacinda Ardern or John Key would have been. But maybe, maybe the economy and the kind of election that we're going through is ripe for that, that it is actually a bit about policy and it is a bit about boring right. leadership, and that's what we seek. So I think it's quite a complex dance, isn't it, that we face each time we go through an election. Jackie? Oh, absolutely. It, it, it is a huge complex, and some of those, um, points, those examples that, is, that you've given illustrate that really clearly. Because there's so many things that happen in points of time. I mean, whoever thought we would have a gimmick, you know, when Jacinda Ardern was elected, you know what I mean? So, and now we're coming out of that pandemic, so it's an entirely different position for New Zealanders now than it was even a year ago. You know, so so, and there's so many um, factors at play into into how people vote, and 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 people also look for. Um, and your your point was right too, Phil, about people looking for cues about how they think somebody will act. So when, when, they're, when they're looking at personality, they're thinking to themselves, okay, so how will that person act if in this situation? You know, and they're kind of making those judgments. Really yeah. interesting stuff, Jackie. Kia ora. Appreciate your time uh, again. That's uh, Jackie Vandeke there, PhD in politics, formerly at the Democracy Project. I did find that actually, uh, Joe, I was uh, coming back to that uh, personality stuff. You know, when you're looking at the leaders' debate, you've got, you might be watching it from a fairly big TV. You're up front there. Uh, the cameras are close in on their faces. And you do you do look for nuances, you know, where they're, they're smiling, whether they're um, f- struggling with a question, how they come off the back of an answer, that type of thing. You, you, person- personality does come into it. Oh, I think anyone is a fantasist if they say personality isn't a factor for them. You cannot divorce um, how you feel about someone and and the sort of ideology they represent to you. But I'll tell—I mean, I'll tell you what I'd like to know is a little bit more about this couple that has not fought for one year, but then have this incredibly, incredibly obscure dispute. I, I'm going to assume they're in Wellington, but I'd just like to know a lot more about that relationship. I mean, that, I'm sorry to bring it back to that level, but feel free. I'm going to well, tell us more. Well, um, panel questioner. Okay. Well, you will find out tomorrow. Uh, I will um, give you a follow-up on that couple who, uh, if you hadn't uh, heard that, they were in a relationship for about a year, growing, going great, but they had their first argument in election season. Uh, they clearly never discussed religion then. <laughs> <laughs> They've literally right. never, ever loaded a dishwasher together. <laughs> So many questions that we need to find out, right? Yeah. Okay. The panel RNZ National. This is just this is a bit of this is a bit of a um, interesting one. This one. Um, we saw some news out of Australia. This is on the ABC that made us wonder where have all the diving boards gone? 
a Sydney pork complex announced this week they would join an ever-growing list of aquatic centres getting rid of their diving platforms. But isn't it a childhood rite of passage? Even during the bombs, we all love it. The diving boards, don't we recall the days we found the courage to jump off a high platform that uh, a big dive? And we wondered if the same trend can be seen here. So with us, Auckland Diving Community Trust CEO Steve Gladding. Kia ora, Steve. Kia ora, Wallace. How are you doing? Very good. So this was uh, a pretty uh, legendary uh, diving pool uh, in Sydney uh, being decommissioned. What about here? What are we seeing in New Zealand? Well, I'd like to say we're seeing a little bit of the opposite in that oh. I think diving is, is coming through, actually. Um, and there's a lot of work being done to develop the sport um, across Auckland and across the country. So look, I, I think councils do find it hard to commit to it. Um, so there's definitely got to right. be a bit of um, lobbying um, to, to make sure that we're being looked after. Um, I think something I think we need to be aware of is, is just having some deep water around as well, because there's many different codes that um, need deep water, artistic swimming, mm. um, water polo. We, we need that. They need a slightly deeper pool. So I think we've just got to be mindful that we are catering for all the codes when we start putting plans in uh, for facilities. OK, Joe. Well, actually, I was just sort of nodding, um, Steve, because I couldn't agree with you more. I think kids should be able to swim in deep water. Um, because my sisters and I, we all grew up swimming in an incredibly deep pool and we just had so much fun. We threw stones to the bottom and dived down and got them. And it was, I mean, that was basically all we did all summer, every summer. And um, it's actually really hard to find pools that are deep enough where you can't touch the bottom now if you were taking people swimming. I can't think of a public pool in Auckland. I I totally agree with you. And and it's something we find. We, We run a a water safety program through Auckland Diving um, where we, we like to get kids in to deeper pools because what we find is they, they go through the swimming lessons, which is great, and they come to us and they've got their goggles on and, and they're really quite scared of getting in this deep water. So we sort of help them get their goggles off and then get them into this deeper water and it's a great way um, to help conquer confidence because at the end of the day, if you go into a body of water outside, you're not going to have your goggles on. It's probably going to be deeper, right? So I, I think it's really important that we are allowing and enabling kids to be able to use deep pools. Ah, oh, we've hit on something here, I reckon, Phil. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the Aussies do that quite well. I mean, there's an Australian tradition that, you know, kids get into pools and they're swimming in schools and that sort of stuff. And I, when I grew up... Um, when I was a, it was a tall, skinny kid, you know, the widest part of me was my knees. And so I would jump into these pools and get really cold and water up my nose. It was because no one was teaching me how, you know, I was just jumping in the pool. And the cool kids would get up on the diving platforms and do the big bombs into the pools and yeah, carry that's on. Right. Remember all of that. And I was <laughs> hopeless at all of that. And, and so as a result, I'm, I'm not a big fan of swimming pools, unless I'm in some five-star resort uh, in Fiji <laughs> with, a, with a martini at the end of the pool. I'm all for a pool there. But you get the idea. So, so there, there was a missing link for me as a kid that nobody took me aside to say, listen, let's, let's dive in here and let's, let's experience swimming. And it just wasn't a tradition in my family. So it's a great idea, I think, to have pools available, not just yeah. for water safety purposes, but also because it's enjoyable and fun, no doubt. Yeah, a, c- a yeah. couple of people here saying, um, please tell us more about the art of the Manu. Uh, <laughs> so people love, you know, the, the, the bombs there. But it did get me thinking that the pools we go to, there is no diving board. 
if you listen to this and if you want to get your young child into diving, how would one do it, Steve, while you're here? Yeah. So um, jump on to, if you're in Auckland, um, www.aucklanddiving.co.nz. But we have diving programs all over the country. So you've got um, Hamilton, um, you've got one in Wellington, and you've got one in Dunedin. We've actually got a little one starting up in Invercargill now as well. Um, So uh, all around the country, um, most people know where to go to find their their, their diving boards, um, but there should be a program near you. But, yep, Auckland Diving is the place to go. Bit of interest here. Auckland Diving, jump on board. Um, Dive uh, in. Why is everyone missing that? (laughs) 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 I just cannot let that pass. Where's my laugh track? Where's my laugh track? (laughs) Yeah, here's one. Beth says, a nine-eye pool lower hut had great diving facilities, but in the new build they've been cut. There's going to be two Zoom tubes. Uh, they said there's not enough in the budget to replace the diving. But as you say, Steve, there are still places you can and uh, get amongst it and dive in, as uh, Joe says. Steve, kia ora. Nice to have you here. Oh, thank you so much. All the very best. Pleasure. Um, Waitara Pool has a great diving pool, but kids can't use it unless there is a pool lifesaver watching and another one here we have that diving and bombing platform on the harbour edge in wellington there you go eight away from five the panel are in z national now to wrap up the show today we're returning to one of yesterday's topics because of the large response we had a degree or a trade what should i do and the demand for tradies and the hurdle of trades being seen as inferior or quote unquote unsexy And among the many who got in touch with us was qualified Christchurch electrician Amos. Amos, great to have you on the panel. Yeah, kia ora, Wallace. How's it going? Good, Amos. Now, now you told us about your experience leaving school to get into a trade. Can you tell us about your experience and the advice that you were given? Yeah, so growing up, always wanted to be a tradie. That's all I wanted to do. Originally a builder, but since electrician. And um, I went to a careers counsellor at the end of year 12 and was starting to chat to them about what I could do. And um, I told them that I wanted to be a tradie. And they said, why would you want to do that? You've got straight merits. You're going you're to be a great uni student. And um, I said, but I don't want to go to uni. And they said, well, you know, you should really stick in and do level three and, you know, go to uni and, you know, you'll get a better job, earn more money. And um, I said, Nah, screw it. I'm I'm going to be a tradie. So I ended up uh, setting my last year 12 exams. I got a scholarship ECO to study, and I uh, the day after my last exam, I started full time work, and I haven't stopped since. Well done, Amos. Well, that's that's Phil. That's quite a story. I agree, and and uh, there's some stuff about what Amos Amos just said there that's really important. First. Uh, you, you do what you love, right? You love yeah. the outdoors. You love these kind of complex things. I mean, I, the builder who's been doing up my house, I mean, he he gets it complicated mathematics. I don't understand it. You know, I'm not a mathematician, but he does and understands all the angles and so on. So to say it's just for dummies is just absolutely incorrect. But there's a, also another point about what Amos has just said that's really important, I think, for everybody to understand about this. 
Amos is clearly driven, mate. You are clearly a driven person. You want to succeed. Mm. Here you are. You're going to make it work. And I think no matter what you choose, if you've got those kinds of personal qualities, then that's going to be a great thing. Because I think it's a bit of a a false uh, thing to say it's a degree or a trade. It's do what you love and really excel at it. So a pointless degree is a lot worse than a great trade. But someone who's not very good at trades and gets pushed into it's not good either. So I really think it's a... It's about doing what you love and then getting hard at it, and clearly you're doing that, mate. So well done. Stay with Ramos. Uh, We'll come back to you, Joe. Yeah, well, I sort of agree with Phil that, you know, um, competent people who are doing something they feel passionate about will bring a lot to it, and they'll find opportunities. And... And make money if there's money to be made. But And weirdly, Amos, I had sort of the same thing happen to me because when I was at school, I wanted to be a chef. And um, I sort of got that feedback that, oh, you know, you could probably do something a bit more impressive than that. And I went to university, and I don't regret that, but, but it is, it's a path I didn't take. Um, but I guess I'm, I'm sort of thinking also... Um, about across my wider family, like I've got um, people in the trades... And some of them are probably finding it harder as they get older. You know, that kind of work, it can take a real toll on you if you're doing physical work. Um, so is that maybe a downside? Amos? Yeah, I definitely think. I mean, you see many builders that have got bung knees and, and do you ask them, you know, would you, would you go back? And they all say no. So, you know, it is a sacrifice. But, you know, construction industry in New Zealand is 7% of the GDP, like, it's a really important industry. And, um, you know, if we don't have these tradies coming through and, yeah. I mean, literally putting their body on the line to, to build um, a better future for New Zealand, then um, I think we're doing something wrong if we're not encouraging people to do that. So, Amos, so the last, I was yeah. going to say, so, so, Amos, you know, so six years on, Lee's left school, told by a career counsellor that, uh, uh, that you should go to uni, not become a tradie. How do you feel about being in the electrician, electrician? How do you feel about being an electrician now? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely been its dark moments where I've thought about giving up and, you know, going and seeing all my friends having a good time during uni while I was stuck at work. Couldn't go snowboarding whenever I wanted to or anything like that. But um, looking back on it now, you know, my wife and I, we own our own home in Christchurch. We're in a good financial position. Um, you know, it's no student loans. I can't. Can't can't argue with that, and um, yeah, it's definitely. I don't think it will be my be all and end all. I yeah. think there's more more to life than you know. You know, there's plenty of careers to try out. So, might try my hand at a few other ones. But um, for the meantime, yeah, it's great. Well, yeah, I um, fantastic. I've got a sister in building services actually, who's an engineer, and um, she's a member of the National Organisation of Women in Construction. And I know through that. I've met lots of women in the trades, and so that's something I'd, uh, that I think there is so many opportunities, like you say, Amos. It would be fantastic yeah. to see um, young women and young men taking up the opportunities yeah, that are right. across construction. Amos, so good to have you on the panel. You're finishing the show. Uh, better let you get back to it. Awesome. Thanks, Wallace. Appreciate the call. Awesome. Uh, that's a qualified Christchurch electrician there, uh, following up on yesterday's uh, a degree or a trade. And that is us. Thank you so much, both. Thanks for the book recommendations, both of you, Phil O'Reilly, Joe McCarroll. I'm Wallace Chapman, back tomorrow, Friday, Power Ballad Friday, 3.45. Lisa Owen and Checkpoint is next. <laughs>